A big reason why some people believe in a future millennial reign of Christ is that some promises that God made to Abraham still need to be fulfilled. But does this align with scripture or have these promises already been fulfilled? That's next on The Dance of Life. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander. I'm your host today, as on all days, but thank you so much for being with me. And today's topic is a continuation of our End Times series. We're looking at whether the promises that God made to Abraham have been fulfilled or they still need to be fulfilled. Some of them need to be fulfilled. A lot of people who believe in premillennial dispensationalism believe that the thousand-year period that Christ will reign on earth physically on the throne of David, is so that some of these promises that were made to Abraham need to be fulfilled. And so in this episode, we're going to be looking at that. Um, The idea is that God, now this is dispensational thinking, the idea is that God never fully completed his promises to Abraham in the Old Testament. That's number one. Number two is that Israel will, or never fully inherited Canaan, which is the promised land, So it has to happen during the millennium. This is the thinking. Number three is that Jesus will reign in Palestine, obviously Jerusalem. That's that's the ancient Palestine territory. And he'll rule on a physical throne in Israel. And and basically Israel is going to be God's chosen, favored nation once more. So remember that dispensationalism believes that Israel has a separate plan of salvation than the Gentiles. And so this is very necessary for dispensational thinking. The idea of a future literal reign of Jesus on the earth in Jerusalem and, you know, basically fulfilling the promises that were not completely fulfilled. So that's dispensational thinking. But here's the thing. If we can prove using scripture that these promises were already fulfilled and that Israel is no longer the chosen people, the chosen nation, then dispensationalism falls apart. So far, we have proved in previous episodes, if you want to go check those out, listen to them, go watch them. They're on YouTube, they're on BitChute, they're on Rumble, I'm on podcasts pretty much everywhere. So thank you so much for being with me. By the way, if you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you do, and do so on my website. It's danceoflife.com. It's just an email list. I stay in touch with everybody. I don't spam anybody. It's just in case, you know, some of these platforms, they like to censor people, especially when you start talking about Jesus, and we're going to be getting into a lot of end times things that maybe are controversial on the alternative side, right? And so you know how they censor people. So go to my website, danceoflife.com, and subscribe there. That way you can get new content, new episodes straight to your inbox. But moving on, so far we have proved in this series that there is no pre-tribulation rapture. So again, if you haven't seen those episodes, make sure you go back and watch or listen to them. But there's no pre-tribulation rapture. Everything happens publicly when Jesus returns, just like Revelation 1, verse 7 says. Every eye will see him. All the signs of Jesus' second return are extremely obvious. You're going to know he's here. And there's no secret coming of Jesus. There's no secret rapture. We will be getting caught up in the air with the people who are getting resurrected. Uh, Everybody's going to be resurrected, but the righteous will be resurrected in caught up in the air by the angels, not by Jesus. Uh, And everybody's going to meet Jesus in the air. So that will definitely happen, but that's going to happen 
after the mark of the beast, after all these things have been implemented and the end has arrived. So there is no escaping, there's no rapture that the church is getting escaped from. So that was a serious blow to dispensationalism, if you've watched that episode. Now, the next episode after that, we looked at whether Jesus is king right now or in the future. And the answer is that he's king right now. Jesus has to be king first and foremost because he's priest. And that's, again, one thing that I hope you take away from that episode, which is that Jesus has to be king and priest at the same time. His role as the intercessor, as the bridge between man and God, happened immediately, right? And so we know from scriptures over and over again that the Messiah is both king and priest at the same time, just like Melchizedek as that type in the Old Testament. And so if we deny that Jesus is king right now, that he has to rule in the future, the big price of that is that he's not priest. He can't be priest if he's not king. See how that works? And obviously there's a big problem with that. If Jesus isn't priest, then we have no gospel. We have no salvation. So that episode proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is king and he was a spiritual king just like he was in the Old Testament over Israel before they rejected him and demanded physical kings. And that was another important point, too, because the Israelites demanded a physical king. They wanted to be just like all the other nations rather than being set apart, which is what God wanted for them, to have a spiritual king over them, a king that was omnipresent, a king that was in their hearts, and they wanted a fleshly king. And God gave them fleshly kings, and in the process, those kings showed just the level of disappointment that you have when you have a human being ruling over you, an imperfect, sinful human being. But in the same time, they were also types and shadows of the future Messiah, which would be both human and God, Jesus Christ, but it would be a spiritual king. So the idea is ultimately this. If Jesus was spiritually the king over Israel, and then he's king again spiritually, why would he go back to being a physical king? It doesn't make any sense. And the other thing to remember is that Jesus, as a person, couldn't rule on the throne of David physically. Okay, the whole idea of the throne of David is a spiritual idea. It is the spiritual authority power over Israel when Israel was actually a type for the future church, which is the church of believers, the the Israel of God, which we'll get into in a future episode. And we'll talk a little bit about that in this episode too, but because of the curse of Kaniah in the Old Testament, all of Judah's descendants were cursed and banned from ever ruling on the throne of Israel again. So it was actually impossible for Jesus to be a fleshly king in the way that the Jews wanted and in the way that the dispensationalists believe that he will be king. He also couldn't be priest, if you remember, because he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. And so all these things prevented Jesus from being physically the king and priest that people thought he was going to be. He had to change the law, and he changed the law through his death. And so all these things are things that we have to take into consideration because they're eating away at this idea that Jesus has to be king in the future, and especially dispensational thinking. Now, another thing we looked at, which was the last episode, was the binding of Satan. The binding of Satan is a very important part of end times Uh, study because some people believe it's in the future, right? Right when Jesus returns, he's going to bind Satan, and then 
usher in the thousand year reign of rule and Satan is bound during that time. And then he's released after a thousand years of Jesus reigning on the earth. Now, other people believe, rightly so, as we showed, that the binding of Satan happened at the first coming where Jesus disarmed all principalities and powers. He was crowned king. He was, you know, took over spiritually over everything. He allowed the gospel to go through all the nations. The elect could now come to God without any obstacles. And the plan of salvation was in full motion. Satan's power to deceive the nations in a general sense uh, was broken. And it was also delayed. He was also delayed from rallying the troops for a battle against Christ which is the battle of Armageddon, but that was the specific way that he was prevented from deceiving the nations. Remember, Revelation 20, where this all comes from, the binding of Satan, has both a specific and a general application. And so we looked at that in the last episode, so go check it out if you haven't seen it. All these episodes, you know, they build on top of each other. And ultimately, you know, all this stuff is very interrelated and it's very in-depth. And so it's important to study them separately. But when you put them together, you get... A big picture, and that big picture is that Jesus is reigning right now. The millennial kingdom is right now. And so in this episode, what we're going to look at is the promises that God made to Abraham, because the conclusion, time and again, is that the future, the idea of a future millennium just doesn't hold up. Now, I used to believe in that. I used to believe in a future millennial reign, because it's probably the most popular eschatological view amongst most people. There's different varying, you know, ways of slicing it, but the idea of Jesus reigning after he comes the second time for a thousand-year period or maybe a longer period of time, metaphorically a long period, this is very popular. But again, it's it doesn't hold up to scrutiny. It doesn't hold up to logic. It doesn't hold up to scripture. And that's something that we have to really study because the consequences are very dangerous. Now, they're dangerous in the sense that, first and foremost, if you deny Jesus as king right now, you're denying him as priest, therefore you're denying the gospel. Now, most people are not aware of that. I certainly wasn't, but that's the consequence. So we have to be careful with that. We have to be careful with anything that diminishes Jesus's power and role and authority. And denying that he is king right now is something that does that. It diminishes Jesus's preeminence. Now, the other more dangerous thing is this, and I've talked about this before in previous episodes. It is that, and we'll probably get into this more in the next episode where we talk about the temple, the third temple being rebuilt, Israel ushering their false messiah and all that stuff. But what we're talking about here is not looking at fleshly things, not looking at worldly things, right? It's learning to see through spiritual eyes, not through literal eyes. And the problem with dispensationalism and this whole idea of a future millennial reign of Christ is that it looks at scripture and prophecy in a very literal sense, especially dispensationalism. They look at everything very literally. And in that sense, you're looking at the physical world. That's exactly what Satan wants you to do. And if you remember the history of dispensationalism, the history of futurism, this idea of a future antichrist, a literal third temple, a literal seven-year tribulation, All these things are twisted theology that the Jesuits came up with to distract people in the Reformation from thinking that the papacy was the Antichrist. And rightly so, because all the Reformers universally recognized the papacy as the Antichrist power on the earth. The power that fulfilled all of the prophecies in Daniel and will fulfill some of the prophecies left 
in Revelation. But nonetheless, that's what they recognized. And so the Counter-Reformation was started. That's how the Jesuits were created. The Jesuits are like the PSYOPs, CIA, military branch of the Vatican, if you know anything about that. And so anyway, the point is, is that the Counter-Reformation was started, and part of the Counter-Reformation was to create an alternative interpretation of end times events, right? So as we go through this series, you're going to see how those two interpretations compare, both the spiritual interpretation and a more physical, literal, dispensational type of interpretation. Now, as we go through this, you also see and look in the headlines that these types of physical things are being fulfilled, right? Right now, as the time of this video, at the time of this episode, Israel is rebuilding their third temple. Israel's ready to announce their false Messiah. So these things are very real. And so people are freaking out. They're wondering, oh my gosh, Bible prophecy is being fulfilled. But is it really being fulfilled in the way that we think it is, right? And that's the big question, because if you recall, the Didac, a second century historical Christian document, the people of that time believed that Satan would impersonate Jesus Christ. And that's alluded to in the Gospels, in the letters. It's alluded to. It's not, it doesn't say full on that that's what's going to happen, but it's alluded to. Jesus warns about false Christ in Matthew 24. Paul talks about the son of perdition, and that's that term is used only for Judas, and so obviously the future person who will personify all of this, obviously there's a system component too, but the person who will personify the Antichrist spirit will have a quality akin to Judas, meaning he was going to be somebody that's in the fold and do the betraying. So Judas was a type for the final antichrist that's the point but the but the conclusion is this is that whatever happens certainly the jesuits and the people who are behind these futuristic prophecies they are behind creating a false fulfillment now what if that does happen let me just get to the extreme point here what if what if that does happen what if they fulfill all of these physical prophecies because they can control that they can control a third temple and they can fulfill it right and at the end of the day, Satan masquerades as Jesus Christ, and everybody thinks that the futurist interpretation is correct. That's the one that we have to go with, that Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to usher in this golden age. And they don't read scripture. They don't really remember that you have to meet Jesus in the air, and every eye will see him. And maybe there's going to be some dramatic display of manifestation that Satan's going to clothe himself in light, just like Paul says that angel uh, that uh, Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. What if that happens? And so many people will be fooled because they think the prophecy's been fulfilled, Jesus has returned, and now we're in the millennial kingdom. And it's a future physical thing that they're looking for because their eyes are on the world rather than spiritual realities. And then everybody worships the false Jesus. And then there's some sort of Demand for worship, the mark of the beast. And then if you refuse that, you're one of the enemies that has to be put under his feet. Because that's what people think. Those prophecies talking about the Messiah and the reign of the millennium, where he's reigning amidst his enemies and putting the enemies under his feet. You're going to be one of those enemies, the one that denies the false Jesus. So now look, I don't know if this will happen, but it's definitely a possibility. And it's certainly 
seeming like they're moving in some direction regardless. Because some of these things that are happening, like the third temple being rebuilt, this is not Bible prophecy being fulfilled. It has nothing to do with Bible prophecy. Because the temple has always been a spiritual symbol for the church, the body of Christ. But we'll get into that in the next episode. In this episode, we're talking about the promises to Abraham. So the promises are in Genesis 12, and they're in other places in Genesis, but let's review them. So if we jump to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 7, the call of Abram. Now the Lord Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, all the, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord Yahweh had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So a couple things we can take from these verses. Number one, that his descendants will be made into a great nation. Numbered like the stars. Now we can see this echoed in Genesis 22 verse 17. So let's jump there really quick. And it says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so this is Genesis 22 verse 17 through 18. So we see this echoed again, and there's a lot of other places we'll see where these promises are echoed, but basically they'll be made into a great nation, numbered as the stars of the, uh, as the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. Number two, his seed, Abraham's seed, will receive the land of Canaan. That's very important because there's specific definitions for the, the territory and we'll look into. And the third promise is that in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That's really important to keep in mind, too. We'll look at that. But let's look at how these promises were echoed in other places in Genesis. And they were echoed to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and even to Moses. So in Genesis 13, verses 14 through 17, um, it goes like this. Verse 14, Then Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And keep this word in mind forever, because we're going to get back to it. Verse 16, I will, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Now, if we move on to Genesis 22, verse 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, called to Abraham, a second time from heaven. This, by the way, just really quick little insert, very good proof texts for the Trinity because the angel of the Lord and the Lord are interchangeable, but they're two separate persons throughout Scripture, which is very interesting. Verse 16, And said, By myself I have sworn, there he is claiming to be 
Yahweh. He is Yahweh, but he's different than Yahweh at the same time, which is interesting. By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And so it's echoed again, right with Isaac as a witness, when Abraham was going to offer Isaac. In Genesis 26, verses 1 through 3, God's promise to Isaac. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to, to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord Yahweh appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all of these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. So he's confirming what he said to Abraham. Verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all of these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Another great verse, by the way, this Genesis 26 verse 5, that Abraham kept the Sabbath because it's very clear that the Sabbath was instituted at creation and it was one of God's moral commandments. It's always been around. Abraham kept his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. So Abraham most likely kept the Sabbath, even though it wasn't formally introduced to the Israelites until Mount Sinai. There's a lot of other things, and I've done an episode on this, so you can check it out. Probably do another series in the future, a little mini-series, where the Sabbath definitely existed before Mount Sinai. So this is an interesting verse. But moving on to Genesis 28, and this is Jacob now. So this is uh, verse 1 through 4, chapter 28, Jacob sent to Laban. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. Verse 4, May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So we see this blessing continually handed down through the generations. Now in Exodus 6, um, verse 8, this is to Moses. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So there's the affirmation of the promise to all three people. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. So, very clear that these promises were the same promises, and God was consistent through every generation. Now, let's look at how these promises were fulfilled. The first promise is that Abraham's descendants are to become a great nation. So, is that fulfilled? And the answer is yes. If we look in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, it says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew increasingly, exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So this is prior to being saved from the Egyptians, but they had grown in enormous number. And if we look in Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, it kind of gives us what that number is, which was a huge number at that time. 
And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Now, this is, there's debate about how many people are here. But if there were 600,000 men, besides women and children, if we add the women and children, then, you know, you're looking at probably around a million people, which is an enormous amount of people for, you know, 1500 BC. Enormous amount of people. Acts 7 verse 17 kind of confirms this because it says that the promise was drawing near. So if we read the verse, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And so if you remember the story, Joseph was sold into slavery, then he kind of rose to power, and then he ended up bringing all of his brothers and sisters back to Egypt and, you know, to avoid famine. And then they multiplied over the course of many generations in Egypt. And then, of course, Moses came along, Moses freed them from slavery. But in that time that they were multiplying, they obviously became exceedingly great in number. Now, here in Acts chapter 7, it affirms for us that the time of the promise drew near. Now, just ask yourself this, if this was written around the time of 1500 B.C., Right, this is the, the time frame that we're talking about, that the time of the promise drew near. That was a very long time ago. So to say that the promise still needs to be fulfilled when the tri- the time of the promise drew near a very long time ago, that doesn't make sense. It should be a red flag. But moving on, if we look in the chapter in Kings, there's a lot of evidence that these promises were already fulfilled. But in one Kings chapter three, verse seven through eight. We see the population, again, too numerous to count. In verse 7, it says, And now, O Lord my God, you have, made yourself, you have made your servant king in place of David. This is Solomon, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Do you remember what the promise was? That they were going to be too... If you, so if you could count the dust of the earth, then you'll count the people of Israel. So by the time Solomon was king, the people of Israel were too many to count. That's how great of a nation they had become. This was already a long time ago, a very long time ago. Now again, in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20, the next chapter over, Solomon's wealth and wisdom. Verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. So do you think that that phrase was used just casually? Or does that phrase, as, uh, as the sand by the sea, a direct reference to what God himself said about the promise, that they would become as the sand of the seashore? I think it's intentional. It's very obvious that it's intentional. And so the status of this promise, that the people would become as numerous as the sand of the seashore, too many to count, this has been fulfilled. It was fulfilled a very long time ago. Now, the next promise is that they would receive all of the land of Canaan. And there is debate about this, but there shouldn't be, because the Israelites did receive all the land. Let's take a look at that. If we look in Joshua, it says that everything's come to pass. This is chapter 21, verses 43 to 45. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, gave, thus the, the Lord Yahweh gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. All the land, take notice of that, 
and they took possession of it, and they settled there. Verse 44, And the Lord Yahweh gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord Yahweh had given all their enemies into their hands. Here's the, the key one, though, if the first didn't get, get to you. Number, verse 45, Not one word of all the good promises the Lord Yahweh had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Very definitive wording there. All came to pass. Now, if we look earlier in Joshua, chapter 11, verse 23, it, it echoes this. This is the same thing. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord Yahweh had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to the Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. So all the land was taken with Joshua. And again in Joshua chapter 23, we see this absolute language. This is verse 14. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and your, and your souls, all of you, that not one word, this is Joshua's final speech here, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord Yahweh God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. So again, we see the language that everything has come to pass. You've inherited the land. Now, in Genesis 15, the boundaries, the specific boundaries of this land promise are described. So let's look at that. This is verses 18 through 21. On that day, the Lord Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the, Ke the Kenizzites, the Kadbanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So very clear land definition. Now, if we look at other chapters later, we see that this was fulfilled. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 21, back where we were talking about Solomon's wealth and wisdom, after saying that Judah and Israel were as many as of the sand by the sea, verse 21 says, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So that border that was specified was fulfilled. It was fulfilled and it's very obvious from these verses. Now, another verse that's important that names these nations and confirms these borders is in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 7 through 8. Let's take a look at that. Verse 7, You are the Lord Yahweh, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites. All those nations that we were just listed previously, this is the land that was given to Abraham, which eventually Solomon ruled over, as you heard previously. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. That's really important too. You have kept your promise, meaning all of this, was fulfilled. So this is really important because the idea that Israel has to return to the promised land and get their Zionist, you know, land of, of all of this territory again, that's a Zionist thinking. That's false. That is not true. That's not what the Bible says. That has already been fulfilled through the promises given to Abraham. <clears throat> Excuse me. Joshua inherited the land. By the time 
Solomon was ruling, he was ruling the entire empire. They were ruling there for hundreds of years, they inherited the land. But now, what about this idea of forever? Remember I said, remember the word forever, because we would come back to it. This idea of, oh, they would inherit the land forever. And so the dispensational thinking is that, well, you know, Israel has to inherit it forever. It has to possess it forever. It only, it only possessed it for a certain amount of time, and then it got taken away. So, you know, it needs to possess it forever. That's, that's the allotment for Israel, because they're the chosen people. Well, again, this is a problem of literal reading of the Bible. Because forever doesn't always mean forever. And this is, this is not something that we can understand in our language, in English, modern English. Because we don't speak that way. When we say forever, we mean, you know, forever. Now, I actually will say this. I, now, I'm going to contradict myself here. Because... Sometimes we use words metaphorically. We say, oh my gosh, that meeting was forever, right? So we do use words like that. And that's the same way that it was used in the Bible, in the sense that when you see forever, it doesn't always mean for eternity. It just means a long period of time, a consistent you know, situation throughout a long period of time. And that's what happened with the Israelites. That happened with their land. They, they consistently possessed that land for a pretty long time, for a couple hundred years, I believe. And why we should reject this idea of them possessing the land forever as in eternity is very simple because forever is used figuratively. There's so many places in the Bible, and I'll give you two, where forever is used figuratively. The first one is with circumcision. If we look in Genesis 17, verse 13, both he who is born in your house and he who is brought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Now, does that mean you'll be forever circumcised? What does that mean, everlasting? Like, should we as Christians be circumcised? Absolutely not. Because circumcision was a type, it was a physical type for getting rid of the heart of stone and getting a new heart of flesh uncircumcise your hearts. That's what's written in the New Testament. And so this whole idea of forever or everlasting, it doesn't always mean for eternity. It means consistently or it's absolute. Now in Deuteronomy 15 verses 17, it's even more clear where he's talking about being a slave forever. And then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. So does this mean like forever slave? Like even after the resurrection, that person is going to be your slave? No, obviously not. First off, you can't live forever, not in this life. And so it doesn't mean forever. It just means he's going to be your slave for a consistently long period of time or maybe until he dies, right? So it really just depends on the context. And so forever, this is the problem with, with dispensational thinking and, and reading. They read things too literally. And so if you read the Bible completely literally, of course, the Bible should be read literally in some senses. The most simplest reading should be the one that you should look at first. But there are a lot of times when the Bible is literature too, right? We have to read it in a figurative, symbological sense, metaphorical sense, spiritual sense. And if your eyes are so focused on the literal, physical, you miss all of these things. And that's the problem with dispensationalism. So this whole idea of Israel having to possess their land forever, 
it's not substantiated because there are countless examples. I just gave you two, but there's countless examples where the word forever or everlasting is not used to mean eternal, as in eternity. It's mean, it just means a long period of time, consistently throughout that period of time, absolute. It doesn't mean for eternity. So that's wrong. That's something to be rejected. Another thing to remember with the land promise is that it was conditional. It wasn't a it wasn't a unilateral covenant. Now, throughout the Bible, you have bilateral covenants, meaning God is going to do something, Israel's going to do something in return. It's a bilateral covenant, meaning both parties are going to do something. The great thing about grace is it's a unilateral covenant. You're not doing anything. God is doing the work. God is doing the work to save you. He's doing the work to atone. He's done the work to atone, I should say. He's doing the work to sanctify you. It's a unilateral covenant. This is what God's going to do. We have to have faith. But for Israel in the Old Testament, all of these promises were based on a bilateral covenant. And we're going to look at that. And that explains why they don't have the land today. And they will not possess the land in the future. In Deuteronomy verse 29, uh, sorry, chapter 29, verse 25 through 28, we see that they forsook their covenant. And if, if they forsook their covenant, they would be uprooted. Verse 25, then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which he had made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and when and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. That's an interesting phrase because it reminds me of the fallen angels that were allowed to take care of the nations, but then they rebelled. Therefore, the anger of the Lord Yahweh was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them out into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to the Lord Yahweh, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There's that word again, forever. Okay, means like for a long period of time, it's absolute that we may do all the words of this law. So what's the point here? The point is that the conditions for inheriting the land and having all these physical promises, they were conditioned upon obeying obeying the word of God and obeying his laws. Did the Israelites obey? No, they whored after other gods constantly. And so they lost the land. That's the point. The Old Testament was a bilateral covenant. It's not a, it's not a unilateral covenant like the New Testament. This is very important to remember. In Deuteronomy, in the next chapter, in the chapter 30, verse 9 through 10, it says, The Lord Yahweh our God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and the fruit of your ground. For the Lord Yahweh will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. When you turn to the Lord Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So it's a conditional agreement. If you obey, you will keep the land. But now here's a very important distinction on top of this. And that distinction is this. You obey the book of the law. They had the law, the commandments, plus the ceremonial laws with the sacrifices. So here's a big question for you. If 
this is the covenant that God made. God doesn't change his mind, doesn't change his laws. If God made this agreement with Israel, and this is supposedly supposed to be fulfilled in the future during a millennial reign of Christ, the only way that this agreement could be fulfilled is if Israel were under the law. Do you see how that works? Does that mean that the law of Moses is coming back in the future millennial reign of Christ? Because that would be the only way that this land promise could be fulfilled in the future, right? It's already been fulfilled, but let's say it was supposed to be fulfilled in the future. Israel would have to obey the laws in the book of Moses. They'd have to do all their temple sacrifices and all these things. Do you think God would allow that? Especially if he's reigning on earth physically. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Imagine there being a third temple, Jesus is reigning as king, and then there's sacrifices going on. That doesn't make absolutely any sense. But that's the logic of dispensationalism if you follow it through. So remember, Israel disobeyed continuously throughout the Old Testament, and they were eventually captured by Babylon. They they lost battles, and then eventually they went captive for 70 years. Now, God promised to return them to the land after seven years of captivity, and that was fulfilled in Ezra by uh, Cyrus. Cyrus's decree initially, and then there were several other decrees. We'll get into these decrees as we look into uh, the book of Daniel, the 70 weeks prophecy, which again has already been fulfilled. There's no future 70th week. This, this is another thing with dispensationalism that doesn't make sense, but all these things were fulfilled, and there's very great evidence to show you that it is fulfilled. So if you believe in a future plan for Israel where they have to keep their land and, and have their own temple, and all this thing, these are things that are, these are deceptions. They're deceptions designed to get your eye off spiritual things, spiritual realities happening behind the scenes, powers rising and consolidating. While people are looking at the third temple and looking at all what this little nation in the Middle East is doing, all these conglomerates and powers are changing behind the scenes and and waging mental warfare against you. And people are ignorant of it because they're looking at the carrot of Israel. So what's the conclusion? All the land promises that God made to Abraham were fulfilled. There are zero, and I mean zero, New Testament passages about a future return to Canaan by the Israelites. Zero. There's zero. All the New Testament authors recognize that these were types and shadows for future spiritual realities. Remember the principle that we keep going over from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 46. It's the physical, then the spiritual. Throughout the Bible, and this is what dispensationalists miss, because they're looking at physical things only, literal interpretation. They miss typology. They miss how, for example, The whole sacrificial system pointed to Christ. It was never intended to be the thing. It was just there to create a type and shadow for the future reality in Messiah. And so you miss these things if you're focused on physical realities. But look, this brings us to number three of the promises, which is how all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. And that promise was fulfilled through Jesus and the gospel. And so let's take a look at that. In Galatians 3, verses 8, we see, again, this echo of all the promises. The the writers of the New Testament recognized that these promises were, excuse me, spiritual in nature. Verse 8, chapter 3 of Galatians. 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So that part of the promise, that number three, all the families of of the earth will be blessed through you, that part has to do with the gospel. Do you see how this works? That was a spiritual fulfillment in Jesus. Now, if we go on to Acts chapter 13, verse 32 through 33, it's the same thing. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, i.e. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So it was fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 33, he's fulfilled it to his children. Who is his children? Spiritual children. Okay, this whole idea of, of spiritual offspring is, is so important. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, the law and the promise. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, which is Christ. This is a very important verse. This, now this starts to link all of those promises as spiritual promises that were fulfilled in Christ. And that's a whole other level. It's very interesting. Verse 25 in the same chapter through 29, this is Galatians 3. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. There's that spiritual children again through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. See how all this works? Jesus was the offspring of Abraham. And by being born again, we become adopted into that family and we share in the benefits, in the promises that God made to Abraham for Jesus. That's how it all works. So you have to start thinking spiritually. Look at the next chapter over, chapter 4 in Galatians, verse 28. Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of the promise. Spiritual children. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 through 29. No one is Jew who is, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. This is what we were just talking about. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. Again, spiritual things. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power of working of God, who raised him from the dead. All of this is spiritual language. It's all spiritual stuff. Body of the flesh, the physical removal of flesh, from a man's groin and the circumcision is a symbol of putting off the flesh as in being born again. Stop living in the flesh. Get rid of that flesh. Subdue it. That's what it's all about. Look at the next chapter. Colossians 3 verse 5 through 11. A little bit longer section. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What we are just talking about. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. That's an interesting connection. 
On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is another verse, by the way, verse 6, really quick pause, that remember that the gospel is not separated from judgment. We have to preach judgment and the final judgment and repentance because the wrath of God is coming. That's part of the gospel. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Amen. Easier said than done. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is, here it is again. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. The point is, is that there is no more distinction. There's no more chosen people. The gospel is it. That is the plan. That is the fulfillment of all things. That's what all of history has been leading up to. All of these thousands of years, it's all been about the gospel. The gospel is the most beautiful thing. How could there be distinction? And some people get the gospel and some people have a physical reality. They have to get a third temple and they have to, you know, go through this Jacob's trouble and seven-year tribulation. So then, you know, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. The gospel is first place. It doesn't share its light with anything. So that's really important. Now, another thing is that the promise was a spiritual kingdom, a, a spiritual kingdom resurrection, spiritual resurrection, all these things were tied into the promise. And we see that in Acts chapter 26. So let's go there. Verse 6 through 8. And now I stand here on trial. This is Paul because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Look at that first verse. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. So the hope and the promise, the gospel, is related to the promise made by God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. So what is this about? Is this about a land promise? No, of course not. It's about forgiveness of sins. It's about eternal life, the resurrection. These things are much bigger than any physical promise. And again, it reduces the gospel to say that Israel has to have these promises fulfilled. No, Israel needs the gospel, just like every other nation. The Jews need the gospel, just like all the pagans, all the people in Africa, all the people in Mongolia and Asia, all the Muslims in the world. Everybody needs the gospel. That's the plan that's active right now. And that's the plan that history has been going and culminating in. We're living in that age. The promise was through Abraham's seed, but it was, the point was, Jesus is Abraham's seed, and that would go through all the nations. He would draw all people to himself. So that's really important. Dispensational looks, dispensationalism looks at physical things rather than spiritual ones. And in the process, it misses the truth. It really does. Now, Another thing is this, Jesus abolished the barrier between Jew and Gentile through his gospel, through his life, through his ministry, through his death on the cross. Dispensationalism wants to bring it back. 
And this is, again, another thing where dispensationalism is contrary to the gospel. We talked about this in the very first episode. One of the, one of the drawbacks of the serious flaws that dispensationalism has. If we look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 through 6, unity in the body of Christ. Chapter 4, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, this is, as he's trying to make it as plain as day, one thing. There's no separate plan for some people and others, and these people get this plan and those people get that plan. One plan, one God, one body of Christ, one church, one group of believers. It's always been about one group of believers. The Israelites typified the future reality, which is the church, which is the kingdom of God, which is the body of Christ, which is the temple. All these things are interchangeable. We'll get into that in the next episode. But all these terms are interchangeable because they're spiritual realities. The kingdom, the temple, the church, it's all in believers' hearts. And that's really important because, again, if you're looking after physical things and physical temples and physical land, then you miss the whole point. Now compare this to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, where it talks about one husband. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. One husband. So what does that mean? Does that mean that that husband has two wives? Think about this clearly now. Throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament, the woman as a bride, as a virgin, has always been representative of the true believers. In the Old Testament, it was Israel, right? And in the New Testament, it's the church. If Israel has a separate plan of salvation, <laughs> this, is, this is how silly it gets. Just follow the logic here. It's very biblical because the woman has always represented true believers. If Israel has a separate plan of salvation in the millennial kingdom, and you also have the church, that one husband has two wives. Does that make any sense to you? I hope that the answer is no, because it doesn't make any sense at all. God doesn't have two wives. He has one wife. That's the bride of Christ. That's the church. That's the people who believe the gospel. Not a church as an institution or a denomination, but the people who believe in Jesus. It's always been that way. In the Old Testament, it was the remnant, the people who followed God's laws and believed in God. We have the full revelation of Scripture, it's now people who believe in Jesus. The gospel's going out to all the nations. So there are no two wives. There's only one wife, one husband. Adam and Eve was a type for the future reality we have with the bride of Christ and Jesus as the husband. So very silly thinking to think that Israel has a separate plan of salvation. Now, a couple of verses that show that there's no partiality with God. So he would never have such a silly thing as two plans of salvation. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34 through 35, Gentiles hear the good news. That's what it says. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So God's not partial. He, his standard is his standard. Do what's right. Now, of course, you're not saved by doing what's right, but God is not partial. And he also will show mercy on who he'll show mercy. 
We know the gospel is going out to the nations. So that's the plan. There is no other plan. He's no. He's not partial to one group, and which is the Christians, and then the Jews have their own plan that they have to go through with the third temple and sacrifices and land promises. It doesn't make any sense. Later in Acts, chapter 15, verse 7 through 9, there's no distinction. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. God made no distinction. No distinction between us and them. What does dispensationalism want to do? It's want to say us, Christianity, Christians, and them, Jews, Israel, the chosen people. It's nonsense. doesn't work. Romans chapter 2, verse 11, God's judgment and the law. Well, it's actually right before the chapter, but for God shows no partiality. Very clear. Mark chapter 16, verse 15 through 16. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So what do we take from this? The gospel is the only plan. That is the only plan. That's the whole reason the entire history of the Bible has been leading up to, and it was fulfilled in Christ. If you believe the gospel, you're saved. If you don't believe, you're not saved. It's as simple as that. And even that is a stumbling block for so many people. There is no separate plan of salvation where Israel has to build a third temple and have sacrifices and whatever other things, inherit more land and all these different things. It's just, they're not at all true. They are deceptions. And they're deceptions designed to mislead you from seeing who the true Antichrist power on the earth is. They're designed to hang this carrot and distract you with what's happening in the Middle East from seeing what's happening in the rest of the world with the real Antichrist power on the earth, which is the papacy. We'll get into that in future episodes. But a final point I want to share with you is that Jews have no other opportunity besides the gospel. This is it. They're, they're no longer the chosen people. They were chosen for a particular purpose, which is to bring about the Messiah. But as you will soon see in a future episode, that period of time after the Messiah was crucified, that period of time of being the chosen people was over, and the gospel went out to the nations. But premillennial dispensationalism teaches that Jews will have a special chance. They're going to have a revival at the end of the age. There's a special plan for them after the rapture, the millennial kingdom, Jacob's trouble. All these things are designed to bring Israel back into you know, relationship with God. They're still the chosen people. But if we look again in, in Acts, such a good book, Chapter 13, verse 45 through 46. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are returning to the Gentiles. The word of God was necessary to go to the Jews first, because God is just but the Jews rejected, most of the Jews rejected the word of God. A lot came to the gospel on Pentecost, but many also rejected it. And so it went to the Gentiles. And the timing of that happened right around 34 AD when Stephen was stoned. 
Stephen was stoned, and he was the first martyr. Everybody was dispersed. They fled Jerusalem, and they went out to the nations proclaiming the gospel. That was the final act of rejection of the gospel message. And the chosen status was done with. It was done away with. There's no more reason for the chosen people to be the chosen people. After the Messiah was born, after he was crucified, after he ascended, after the martyrs, after the first martyr and more rejection, there's no more chosen people. To believe that Israel is still the chosen people is a lie. It is nonsense. It doesn't, it's not supported by scripture and it's not supported by logic either because there is no more purpose for the chosen people. Everybody's under the gospel. The Jews rejected the gospel a long time ago. Some of them accepted it and those people founded Christianity, but many of them rejected it. And if we read Isaiah 49 verse 6, we see that the Jews again were a type for the Messiah. In verse 6 he says, it is it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The point of Israel, my friends, in the Old Testament was to create a type and shadow for the Messiah, for the gospel. The gospel is the full fulfillment of everything that happened in the Old Testament. If we're hanging on to things that still need to happen, that, did, that God somehow didn't deliver in the Old Testament, we are not preaching the gospel. The gospel is the fulfillment of all things. So we have to remember that. they were The Israelites were chosen to bring about this message. All the things that they had, the kings, the sacrifices, the sanctuary, the high priestly role, it was all physical before the spiritual. See how that works? God does this throughout the Bible. But once the spiritual has come and been fulfilled, there is no more purpose for the physical. You know, if you're cooking and you're using eggs and you crack the egg and you put the egg yolk in your batter or whatever you're cooking, you throw away the eggshell. Now, I'm not saying Israel's been thrown away, but the eggshell doesn't have a purpose unless you're composting it. <laughs> so I guess that's an argument there. But the point is, is that Israel was used for a purpose. Now, they are saved through the gospel just like everybody else. They're saved like everybody else. Now, there's a challenge with this, and that's from Romans 11, and it's in verse 25 through 32. It's a little longer section. I want to read it really quick. The mystery of Israel's salvation. Lest you be wise in your sight, this is verse 25. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Sion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I, make, when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Great proof text for election, by the way. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So some people say that, well, the hardening of Israel, this is just, they're going to be hardened until the very last tribulation, and that's when they're going to have revival. 
But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about everybody. First off, everybody's under the gospel. God has consigned all to disobedience. We're all desperately wicked that he may have mercy on all so that he can provide the gospel for everybody. That's the point. So that's something to take away for us is the, the word all includes both Jews and Gentiles. And when it says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, this is verse 26. It's not saying, and in this way, like they're going to be hardened until the end of time, and that's how they're going to be saved. No, it's saying, and in this way, this is how I'm going to be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And in this way, meaning this is how they're going to be saved, through the gospel. They're going to be saved through the gospel. And when it says, verse 31, So they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. So this is not talking about a period of 2,000 years in the future or more. It's talking about now, right? So they had a hardening, a partial hardening, so that they could reject the gospel, so that it was a legal precedent to give it to the nations. But now, that hardening was being dealt with because they're receiving the gospel as well, right? So Paul wrote many letters, and I think Hebrews Paul wrote, but many letters to many Jews throughout the gospel age, the first century, to bring them back into the gospel. And so this is not talking about a future reality. It's talking about a now reality. It's talking about how the Jews are going to be saved, just like everybody else, through the gospel. And it's reminding us that God, first and foremost, consigned everybody to disobedience. If God, This is a great proof text for election and predestination. We are all doomed. If God hadn't had chosen to intervene in your life and give you the eyes to see, the awareness of the gospel so that you could believe, we would all be consigned to disobedience and therefore wrath. So this is really important. It's just reminding people about the gospel. So final thoughts. The Jews, first and foremost, are no longer the chosen people, and we're going to confirm that over and over again in a couple future episodes. Next episode, we're talking about Israel and the third temple, but they're no longer the chosen people. They have not been the chosen people for a very long time. The idea that they are the chosen people and that we need to be watching everything that they do in the Middle East and and praying that they receive their land promises in their third temple, this is nonsense. This is just Judaism in a Christian package, and so it's very dangerous. But Jews are already getting the gospel. If you're familiar with One for Israel Ministries, great ministry. I think they've only been around for maybe 10 years, maybe less, I don't know. Great ministry. A lot of Israelites, you know, Hebrews, uh, studying the Bible and, and showing it from a from a Hebrew perspective that dispensationalism, this whole idea that there's a future land promise, you can see a lot of studies there, people with a lot of great knowledge and degree and study and in their own cultural context in Hebrew, in the, in the original language. And they have great studies. I love one for Israel ministries. And they're doing a great job sharing the gospel with Jews with Jews who've been lied to for generations. And so that's already happening. Now, do I think that there's going to be a revival in Israel? Well, how do you measure revival, first and foremost? And second, the gospel's going throughout the whole world. So I'm not specifically looking at Israel and measuring how much of a revival there. I'm very excited to see 
more Jewish people come to the gospel, and I think that's great, but I don't think they have a special status compared to everybody else. Everybody should receive the gospel, and there should be revival everywhere. But again, the Bible clearly tells us that there is going to be a great falling away at the end of the age. Nevertheless, that's already happening in Israel, and that's a good thing. They're getting the gospel. But remember, the Pharisees are the ones who rejected Christ, and they're the ones who started Judaism. Judaism likes to credit itself as this old religion, but it's really not. It's actually much younger than Christianity. The Talmud was written, the Babylonian Talmud was composed in 800 AD, around that time. Now they say oral tradition and blah, 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 but look, the reality is Judaism has nothing in comparison to Hebrewism. The Old Testament was Hebrewism. If you look at what Jews do today on the Sabbath, they've made it into this burden. And the whole point is the Sabbath is not to be a burden. It's about a, it's about a conscientious effort to spend time with God, not to Oh, I can't walk, I can't light candles, I can't do this, I can't do that, and i got to do this thing and that thing. How many things they've added to the Passover meal, to tradition. So all these things in Judaism is tradition of the Pharisees, the very same tradition that Jesus rebuked them for. Judaism is not Hebrewism. It is a rebellion to Christianity, which was propagated by the people who rejected Christ. The Jews who converted to the gospel were the ones who started Christianity. Christianity is the continuation of the Old Testament, of Hebrewism. So that's something that's probably controversial, but it shouldn't be because it's the truth. Again, again, the truth is always controversial. But nevertheless, they've had generations of lies in that culture, as opposed to other cultures, which, you know, they've had paganism. I think it's easier to evangelize, but I could be wrong. But with the Jewish population, they've been specifically lied to about Jesus and told to reject Jesus and for all these different reasons and so on. And of course, these are just lies. But we know why, because the people who started Judaism are the people who rejected Christ. It was a response. You know that they believed in two powers in heaven in the first century because of the angel of the Lord, like we read earlier today, and Yahweh. Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh were two people. And they couldn't reconcile, how did, how do we do with this? You know, it's, you have Genesis, the Lord Yahweh was walking through the garden. How is that possible? Well, it's possible if you have a trinity, if you have a Father, Son, Holy Spirit, if you have a Son who takes on corporeal form, pre-incarnate form. And so there was this Jewish theology of two powers in heaven. And that was right up until the first or second century AD. And then they declared it a heresy. I wonder why. Does that have anything to do with Jesus coming to the earth and claiming to be God and doing miracles? Probably. Do you see how all of this was just a rebellion to Christianity, to the truth? So Judaism is not an old religion. It is a newer religion than Christianity. It is a religion founded on rebellion. So they have a lot to work through, but let's pray for them and that the gospel will get through to the people it needs to get through. The elect will hear the gospel, that's for sure. Now, right now, Israel's going through this third temple and false Yanaka Messiah guy healing people, and people are talking that the Messiah is here, Messiah is here. They're also going through the most conservative Zionist government there is. And so the Middle East is a powder keg. It's about to get crazy at the time of this video. I mean, I don't know who knows what's going to happen this year, but the point is this. They're ready to, fall, to usher in their false Messiah. They're ready to build the third temple. 
are all these things prophecy? Are these prophecy being fulfilled or is it something more sinister? And that's what I'm going to explore in the next episode because as we start to unpack this idea that the Jews are actually not the chosen people, not anymore. Everybody's under the gospel. What does it then mean that the Jews are building the third temple and they're ushering their false messiah and, and all these things? What does that actually mean? And that's another interesting topic that's going to be next time, but I hope today has been useful for you. If you believed in a future millennial reign of Christ, now there's one less reason to believe in it. If you believed in dispensationalism, I hope you, I hope this has helped to open your eyes to see the truth because dispensationalism is a lie. It's a lie for several reasons, and one of them is that it's contradictory to the, go- to the gospel. There is no separate plan of salvation. There is only the gospel. And we should reject all these fleshly, physical, worldly ways of reading the Bible, which dispensationalism does. It's completely literal. It puts your attention on the physical rather than seeing the spiritual, which is much greater. So, until next time, hope this has been useful. I hope it's been a blessing. God bless. We'll see you soon.